So this is Rob Thomason. I'm here with Andrew Shoemaker. And the the okay, and and I'm also the fourth. So let me just throw that in there. Uh, how many Elvis movies have we watched so far? This will be number seven. And how many Elvis movies do we have left to watch? Roughly twenty-one <laughs> to twenty-three. I, I think. I feel like I've been doing this podcast for a long time, and I haven't. We but should have been tracking the amount of time we spent doing this by how long our beards have gotten and then trimmed and then regrown again. And yeah, then... if you could collect all our beard hair so far on this podcast, you could make a rope. You could tie together a couple of sea turtles yeah. with the beard hair we've disposed of <laughs> yeah. and ride off of our rum island back to the Black Pearl. That was a Pirates of the Caribbean reference <laughs> for all you carabinis out there this is where we're doing this episode so far completely sober too so i don't know where we're at but not in a good place (laughs) should we start this over absolutely not this is jailhouse talk i'm andrew shoemaker this is rob thomason we're here for movie number seven wild in the country which i gotta be honest i was totally wrong it's not a western oh and hey you know that's just because we don't know everything about elvis clearly we barely even do the research for one episode (laughs) let alone for the next episode you give yourself some credit you do a lot of work i do nothing well i mean to be honest the thing is i try not to research as much until after we watch the movie you know Mm -hmm. so i can keep it pure in my mind okay so what is this movie this movie is a movie that's not a western and I don't really know very much about it because we haven't watched the trailer yet. I can't wait to watch Not a Western. Man, That's the genre that gets me amped. The reason I thought it was a Western was obviously wild in the country. I don't. You assume it sounds a little westerny to me. I don't know, it sounds like a Harrison Ford dog movie to me. Ooh. <laughs> I have no desire to see Call of the Wild, nor will I ever. Anyways, this is Elvis's seventh movie, as we said, coming right off of G.I. Blues and Flaming Star. In the same year? It was released the next year. It was released June 8th, 1961, but he films G.I. Blues made a June of 1960, right, after coming back from, from Germany. Mm-hmm. Flaming Star, August to October, so he had a month off. Wild in the Country, November, right after he finishes filming yeah. Flaming Star. So this is three movies back to back to back. So there's really, again, not very much background on his life during this time between those two because he's just rolling one right into the other. And he's just making that paper. You know? He did get his first degree black belt during this time. We've not talked a lot and, about his karate. It, but he's what type of karate? Do you know? Is it taekwondo? From the magic of editing, we have now learned <laughs> that Elvis learned Shotokan karate. Yeah, Shotokan's tight. I had a buddy who took Shotokan karate in uh, high school, and he he thought he was really cool, and he sparred with someone who had been taking taekwondo since he was like two years old. The guy that's taking Taekwondo did a giant spinning, like, roundhouse kick in the air, and just, I've never seen anyone go horizontal at five feet in the air before falling to the ground. It was crazy. So Elvis gets that black belt, and he turns 26 while they're filming Wild in the Country. Really, that's about it. So uh, let's go ahead and check out the trailer and see what's up. The wind blows wild in the country. Part of the wild, wild country. 
got busy, I got dazzled and dizzy. I fell like a ton of bricks. My knees are weak, my head is spinning around. I guess that love has turned me upside down. Thought I'd get hurt, but gee, it's turning. I swear I slipped. I stumbled, I fell. Needs a man to go to hell with. Because that's what I want. Hours and hours of heaven that just slides on down to hell and we don't care how or when it ends. You're wild, Glenn, just like me. Unhappy wild. Wild, they called him. Wild, he sang. Marching off to get married this husky dusty day. And wild, he loved. He's gonna catch us, you and me, together and sin. I have no idea oh what God. that movie is. Okay. I guess it's like, is it like Badlands? Is it supposed to be like Badlands? I can't tell anything from that trailer. I have no idea where it is. There's there's Elvis and two ladies and maybe a party city that he works at. <laughs> but other than that. They I, play songs and I, I don't know what they feel about those songs. It's a lot songs. of ballads. This uh, one's gonna. I feel like this is going to be a fun one to talk about afterwards, not to watch. Yeah. I, I, I just literally know nothing about the story from that. So this was what year 1961. I'm gonna look at when Badlands came out. Hmm. Uh, that was that's after this. That's 1970s, right? Oh, 73. Yeah, 73. that's way later than I thought. It was. Yeah. So neither one of those ladies was Sissy Spacek, though. So <laughs> this one. This well, one to, looks give, a to be fair, the the trailer we found on YouTube literally had the size of a face was one pixel. <laughs> So, if they were emoting, there was no way we could tell. It was insane. We are definitely starting this episode. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the Elvis body tracker, which is going to be how many people have been punched by Elvis in all the movies. And we're going to... Because, again, he just can't go through a movie without, without punching somebody. Yeah. I, I used, the Elvis drinking game is every time Elvis slugs somebody, you take a shot. And every time a mom loves Elvis, you take a shot. And you'll mm. be hammered by the end of the show. We should Okay, we should definitely... When we come back from the break, we're going to have a laid out... Elvis drinking game complete with rules so that you, the listener, may have just as good a time as we're having recording it. Wait, are we going to give that to them or do we Patreon that content and force them to support us? You know, I do love hiding good content behind a paywall for the sake of my own financial compensation, but we'll give you an official laminated rule set if you want with the Patreon, but we'll leave the rules up for the public domain. All right. All right. So, that's fair. That's cool. All right. We'll be back with some rules and maybe a, maybe a film review after. Okay, so we said we were going to come back with some Elvis drinking game rules. I came up with a couple. You let me know what you think. We can add, we can change, we can remove, whatever, if you had any you wanted to add on. Yeah, I have one. Uh, every time Elvis commits unintentional manslaughter, you have to shotgun an entire beer. Nice. <laughs> and you'd be doing that a lot more than you'd think, honestly. And you'd yeah. be doing it again in this movie, yeah. too. Yep. I had take a shot when a mom vocalizes love for Elvis, obviously. Right? Okay. You, know, yep. you have to. It's a staple. Uh, Elvis punches someone, which I I don't think you can do it on a per-punch basis. I think it's incidents of a fight. Incidents of a fight, or if you want to do per-punch, it's a sip every punch, which might be fun. Uh, Elvis is asked to sing in public by a stranger. 
whenever Elvis is told by someone that he's extremely talented or bright. <laughs> oh, anytime Elvis gets off scot-free with zero consequences, you That's, have to I said finish ch- your beer. Yeah, I said you- finish your beer when Elvis completely avoids any consequence <laughs> for his actions. So you, That's it's like, the loving you rule. You're, you're the sacrificial lamb. You have to take Elvis's consequences Absolutely. on yourself you have to absolve his sins you are the sin eater for elvis and that's how he keeps getting away with it okay I and like then my that. very last one it's a little, little bit of a twist on the common drinking game but you have to pour out the rest of your beer whenever elvis is offered a drink but refuses oh because I like that, that happen, happens a lot the only movie i remember him drinking in is jailhouse rock he has a beer at one time because yeah. his fam uh peggy's family when he goes and he has the lady i don't know what the hell you're talking about that the whole <laughs> jazz thing right he drinks yeah. a beer in that scene every other time i've watched he's offered drinks a lot of times but he's also like no i'm good even happens in wild in the country he's off yeah he doesn't want to drink that gut wash i mean he does end up eventually but it's 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 a recurring thing i've noticed more so than than not yeah but i like those Uh, we'll we'll keep working on it if you have suggestions uh feel free to email us jailhouse talk pod at gmail.com and uh let us know if you have additions you think would be great for the drinking game but uh today yeah wild in the country yeah we watched it Good old classic melodrama. Yeah, I, I was pleasantly surprised, yeah. I think, personally. Don't get me wrong, there's plenty of story choices that are a little bit confusing, or at times a little frustrating. But here's what here's the number one takeaway I, I got from this movie. I think this is Elvis's best acting performance yet. Mm. I think that he's really good because he has a great range in this movie. He's not all aggression. He's not all soft he's not all charming he's a lot of things he's every version of what i've liked in elvis in these movies he's put it all together he knows how to take his time in a scene he's not rushing through the lines like especially all the uh the stuff i really liked was with irene miss speary uh when they're doing their counseling sessions and stuff like that especially the first monologue he has when he's talking about his mom listen ma'am i'm always enslaved on our farm and i do mean enslaved Many times I've seen her out in the hot sun chopping cotton while them two men laid up drunk and wasted. She'd done the meals, she'd done the chores that Hank wouldn't do and I couldn't. And then that that lady, and she was a lady, ma'am. She'd she'd soak her old old stockings in, in buttermilk and put them on her arms, not to burn, and, and go work in the sun while Paul's fishing the river with a jug by his rump. But you take those scenes, and then you have like the fun that he has when he's drunk with Tuesday Weld, um, Noreen, when they go to Miss Fury's house, and they're spraying her house with a garden hose, all that. And Irene just kind of laughs, lets them drive off completely hammered, and it's just like, oh. But Elvis is really funny, and he's having a great time, and he's like, I don't know, I thought it was a very pleasant, restrained, but very intentional performance by Elvis that I, it wasn't nearly feeling as one-dimensional as, like, for example, he's really good in, in uh, Flaming Star, yeah. but I feel like that that character has, like, a, I don't know, he's just kind of, like, headed down a one-way track, yeah. and so he's just kind of sticking to this one emotion and just going with it and ramping up over time. Yeah. This, he's a little more varied, and I think it's just a more complex performance, a more nuanced performance that I that I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's. I would say it's definitely in the top three so far in terms of acting. You can tell he's grown a lot. 
you can tell he's enjoying it. I also think he's helped a lot by a director who's really competent with shot choice mm-hmm. and editing was great in this movie too. They use their close-ups very well and something that happened in this movie that has not happened <laughs> in a single movie so far is every time Elvis woos a love interest by song in the movie, they're just watching him and smiling and then at the end they love him. In this movie, Tuesday Veld, I guess is how you say her name, the the one who plays um, Noreen. Noreen. She shows the transition in the part where he plays the guitar on the stairs from just like having a good time and liking him to transitioning into tender love. And he does the same thing back, and it makes the director make sure to show those close ups throughout that transition, which up to this point, it's literally been like Elvis dances in a medium shot. They maybe make eye contact. And then by the end, they, sh- they just think he's charming. Mm-hmm. And so I think his performance is also helped by a very competent director this time. I would also say that I think this love triangle in particular is much more realistic is a bit of a far-fetched word for any of these movies, probably, right? But that it has a much more understandable logic to it. Noreen is kind of like the wild side. It feeds into the emotions that are already there that we kind of see in the beginning. She encourages him to be like, she has, what she say at one point? She has the whole speech where she says, I want to get out of here. I'm young. I want a good time out of well, then life. Then do it, hon. Paint your toenails red and run away. It needs a man to go to hell with. Because that's what I want. Hours and hours of heaven that just slides on down to hell and we don't care how or when it is. You're wild, Glenn, just like me. Unhappy wild. Hey, Pa's got some money stashed around. He hides it like a hobbity little squirrel. We could take a slice of that money and run away. No, we right. never know. You know I can't run away right now. I got plans. I'm a spirit. I want you, Glenn. And I mean what? Ever since we went waiting in Felcher's Creek. She is feeding that fire that he already feels inside of him, for good and for bad, right? Taking control of his own destiny, but probably a little too far. Then Millie is kind of like the safe choice, the one that is going to... If she's on his level, she's a little bit probably subordinate to Elvis in all of his whims and decisions, as happens in most of these movies, but I think is a good grounding spot for him. Well, Bitterly, I don't have the right to ask. It's about Nori. It's a trick. Her pa says I got to marry her. I don't want to hear any of that. Now be honest some other time. I'm, I'm sorry for Nori, for you too. I'm sorry for myself that I love you, Glenn. It won't stop. And you're wild and unsettled, like a porcupine that can't be held. So there's her, and then you have Irene Speary, who's the counselor assigned to him and is helping him work through some of these issues. That's the one that's a little more confusing as to why she necessarily falls for him other than it just being a trope for this movie. But I still like their relationship a lot. Let's let's just talk about the elephant in the room. This has... There's some, again, like all of us movies, there's certain things that I think are kind of progressive that we'll talk about later. But the biggest problem with this movie ideologically is every woman in this movie is just a plot point on Elvis's journey. 100%. And it's worse than usual because it's, it is more emotional and psychologically driven. So there's a few statements that are really psychologically damaging. Like when Irene blames herself for her husband not being ready for marriage. That's pretty messed up. That's That was one of the points I was most confused about is her relationship with her husband and what she sees in Elvis that she also saw in her husband didn't make any sense. But that plus her relationship with Phil Macy, the other guy who she rightly does point out, they've, I guess, been having an affair for a period of time. And he says, 
If I let my wife divorce me, I'd lose all this. I'm just the steward of the plants and mills her father left her. But I'd gladly give it all up if, if you will marry me. Not that we'd exactly starve, you understand. Phil, I wonder if you realize what you're saying. Of course I do. I'll get a divorce if you say you'll marry me. I can't be any clearer than that. No, you're saying if I make the decision, you'll get a divorce. You won't make the decision, but you'll, you'll leave it up to me. And I, I don't think that's right. It's as though you were using me. She's like, why are you putting the, that decision on me? That's, that burden shouldn't be on me to be the one who effectually has to break up your marriage. Yeah. There's a point, too, where Irene tells Glenn that if people didn't struggle, there would be no great men, no artists, no scholars, all these things. It's just the movies. It's clearly in a world where women are supposed to bolster up the men who do great things. They just kind of float around and react to how much they love Elvis or how much they want to support Elvis or the other men in their life, essentially. But there is some interesting stuff going on with the concept of marriage. Like marriage in this movie is very viewed as very flawed and fractured. And there's that line, you can't keep a heart in a box. You got to let it free. I thought that was interesting, too. And I'm not really I haven't quite worked out what it's going for with that. It's very different from G.I. Blues, right? G.I. Blues is like the nuclear family is the answer to mm -hmm. all problems. And this is like... There's not a single family portrayed in this movie that isn't very broken in some way. Because Elvis is... Sorry, Glenn Tyler, Glenn's own family, his father and his, and his brother are alcoholic, abusive people. Phil Macy also does not like his son very much, it seems, yeah. nor his wife. Glenn's mother was trapped in a marriage that was abusive and a dead end glenn's, um, glenn's uncle is kind of like a task master mastery controlling of his own daughter yeah noreen's husband is fake essentially and they have to live in that that to be socially acceptable so maybe it's playing with that idea of questioning why marriage has to be the only socially acceptable way to exist in our culture maybe it's kind of toying with that idea a bit but in the end no matter what it always seems to let the responsibility lay on the men more than anyone else yeah. for that success yeah and then the failure is, is irene puts the failure on herself right mm -hmm. so if it fails is it is it the men's fault or not i don't know it does seem to acknowledge a little bit like in that moment with irene where she says you can't make me make the decision it does seem to acknowledge a little bit the whereas the men are just blindly doing what they want and the women are having to suffer the repercussions of their decisions but also in the end the movie acknowledges that but ultimately doesn't like you said give them any agency anyways so it's kind of, it's a little confusing as to what it's trying to really say or really go for. Yeah. I, and the note of Elvis's acting, at first I was put off by how back and forth he was and how he'd be, have those fits of rage or like super angry and then melancholy and calm. But then you kind of realize that that's, that's written into the script and that he's clearly suffering from a form of PTSD because of his abuse from his father growing up his whole life. Well, so it's it actually he ended up being really great at switching between those modes throughout i thought and i mean pretty much if you go back through and chart it i don't think there's any instance where elvis is the one instigating trouble he may respond very poorly to other people aggravating him or pushing him or whatever they make sure he gets socked in the face first before yeah. he well i mean we hear a, we hear a punch before we even hear a line of dialogue at the beginning of the movie because, yeah let's go through the movie because it just opens up over over the you know beautiful shots of it's it's supposedly set in the Shenandoah Valley. Okay. It opens up all these shots of nature and the beautiful valley or whatever, and then it just cuts right into Elvis as Glenn Tyler fighting with his brother 
who and his dad who's just smoking a pipe and just watching them beat the crap out of each other in a barn i was very confused and then later it makes sense when you figure out who his father was yeah but, but basically his brother tries to kill him because he chucks a pitchfork at him so elvis cracks a chair over his head takes, knocks him out takes the chair to him like like hell in a cell baby just pro wrestling techniques and then just, just growing and then just bolts <laughs> and that's pretty much what opens up this scenario where we kind of see all this i don't know it's kind of like the community the community judiciary system, which is just a group of counselors and lawyers and a judge. I, I thought it was like a juvenile uh, board, essentially. Maybe I guess like a parole board kind of a situation. Yeah. But they're basically evaluating, look, we understand that this is not an ideal situation, but we also, how are we supposed to raise him up in this community, have, have him be a productive member of this community without encouraging, you know, the violent actions he's taken? not really condemning the dad or the brother for anything that they've done but you know we don't really know how much is known to the public about that which i think is kind of you know the problem or the frustration that he has mm -hmm. and they I, again this is the first scene that council scene was the first scene that i noticed the close-ups were handled very well and the director knew what they were doing mm -hmm. because when they're talking to glenn about what happened irene he says that he reads and irene says comic books and it cuts to this close-up and you get a like nice eat shit look essentially from elvis uh being like i read more than comic books i'm smarter than that mm. and that was very quick and deft that they used that close-up and then they used it again and that the thing that kind of turns everyone around is when he proves that i think the reverend says he when he was a kid he didn't miss a day of church mm -hmm. growing up and he proves that he can quote the bible essentially and that he is smart he's just not having the right outlets to use that intelligence though. yeah and there's that you know that close-up where he talks about oh glenn i want you to turn around tell judge park and the parole board what was the master's cry from the cross Eli, Eli, lama sabak and where in scripture glenn is that noted in matthew 27 46 and sort of turned around in mark 1534 and what does Eli, Eli, lama sabak i mean it means, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? There's a huge religious overtones, and like he says, he has the mark of Cain on him now. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of he never talks about it with Irene in like the counseling sessions or anything. But there definitely is a strong, I don't know, he has a heavy guilt that seems to be based in religion. The kind of things he says about himself that are very, very biblical themes. Yeah, and um, maybe that ties into this marriage theme, too, because marriage is supposed to be this act of God, the two becoming one, and it's so fractured in this movie. But it kind of, they seem to be dropped in as lines here or there. They aren't necessarily, they aren't really delved into a lot. They're yeah. just kind of surface color for the character. And I wonder, if because it was based on a book, Lost Country, and I wonder if the book delves into it a little more than the movie does, uh, because so much of that's probably internalized that it's a little bit harder for us to really see that come through on the screen yeah i think that it's also it's it's meant to elevate the theme a little bit more beyond just the simple melodrama mm. but it's not it's not about that you know it's just it's a layer on top to help it reach like a broader uh meaning beyond just these characters in this story so this council kind of ends up deciding that the best thing for elvis to do is to go live with his uncle and work with him and have him kind of be in his care away from his own family and then irene miss Beery will she's a psychiatrist 
and she's going to be assigned to him just to do counseling sessions, therapy, whatever, try to help him work through the situation as best they can. And for a beginning, it, it looks it looks like a good situation for him, right? His his uncle's a little bit of a shady dude. He kind of runs a weird pharmacy that's also like a not bootlegging moonshine, but it kind of is. Yeah, he's a snake oil salesman. Yeah. So he's selling people medicine. He even says at the beginning that it's all the same thing. It's just dyed different colors. Mm-hmm. And he'll say it's for different ailments. But he says like 90% water, 10% grain alcohol or something like that. Yeah, he's he seems okay, but you get a sense like... He's a bit of a used car salesman, pretty much. Yeah. Now... Suppose it's, uh, well, Johnson and Terry. Now, they'll order under their own label. That's, that's Shenandoah Elixir. That's this one right here. Now, mine's Old Seminole Tonic, sold in every state in Dixie. Now, Salem Drugs, they'll order under their own label, too. That's them right there on the end. And it's all the same stuff? Yeah, all the same, except for the labels and the coloring matter. 87% aqua pure, 13% grain alcohol. Of course, some folks won't want no label at all. Just walk right in off the street and buy a few at a time, huh? <laughs> when he goes to see Irene, though, for the first session is when we finally start to see him open up a little bit. And we I was worried in the beginning that he was just going to be almost a Jailhouse Rock type character that's just kind of grumpy and surly and whatever this whole time. And it was just going to be another exhausting hour and a half, two hours of him just pouting. But he really does open up in these sessions and he starts to talk about his mom and how his brothers his brother and his father were alcoholics his whole life and they basically treated his mom like a slave and kind of drove her did they did they does he say specifically how she died i can't remember or is it just that they treated her so poorly there was one of those like she died of a broken heart kind of circumstances they did i don't remember or did them she saying... leave either way the mom no, is not in the leave. picture anymore and he certainly blames the, the dad and the brother for that yeah one thing that i was a little confused by was they kept making mention of how elvis couldn't do any chores around the farm and his dad says we can never find a tool that fit his hand i didn't know if that was like a metaphorical way of saying like he just wasn't good at working well glenn does say that when he brought up writing it was like he took a blowtorch to the american flag so it's i assume it's that kind of idea where he's more of an artist and a writer not really a great laborer like hands-on person and his dad resents him for that Okay, that's probably it. And I just was I just assumed it was very literal and I I kept looking at his hands constantly be like, are they deformed? Does he have like is he have I don't the carpal tunnel? What's going on here? But I guess it was more of like a nothing fit his hand in terms of nothing was been the right fit for him and we haven't found I guess that's kind of what the yeah, big they don't theme care is. they don't care what the fit is for him. They just they're just like he can't do the jobs around the farm that I the way I need him to do it. He's too busy in his head. Which is why Irene is so important cuz she does see what the fit is for him. She she does encourage him after he tells her this whole story of why his life is the way he is and his frustrations with it. She tells him just write it down. She wants him to give him an assignment where he he loves writing, he loves reading constantly. And she encourages him to pursue this because she thinks he might really have a shot at being a good writer. Glenn, have you ever thought there might be a third road? Oh, what's that, ma'am? What your mother wanted for you. College. What makes you say that? This does. Your story. Glenn, have you any idea how good this is? How much promise it shows? Do you really mean that, ma'am? I mean, you yourself said the grammar and the spelling was pretty the bad. spelling and grammar, that can be taught, but... This has something that can't be taught. It has such beauty and power and, and excitement. It, it jumps right off the page. All you need is discipline. I think also another reason she encourages him to be a writer is because her, act, her, her late husband was a writer as well. So that's one, of the, that's one of the first things that really starts to connect them, even though eventually it gets like 
think it's a little too intimate or she probably projects a little bit too much onto him but it's the really the only fully positive force in his life other than millie probably at this point yeah and that brings me to i think what i is the central theme of this movie there's a lot of stuff it plays with but this movie was directed by Philip Dunn, I guess is how you say his name. He was a writer-director. He was a prolific writer in Hollywood as well. And there's a major theme in this of literacy as, as emancipation, literacy as power, and freedom. Because one thing I thought was interesting is when Irene is with Phil for the first time, and Phil's, I guess it's his apprentice or his secretary or something at the law firm is a black man and he's up for his bar he's taking his bar exam to study law and this is in the fit of this is in the middle of the civil rights movement this is like right in the heat of things and so it definitely i think broadens glenn's journey of literacy as freeing him as as making him have power in this world with what's happening in the civil rights movement intentionally it does this in the film because there were like literacy tests for voting at certain points that would try and keep African Americans from voting at the time as well so I thought that was really interesting that it engaged with that specifically and I think intentionally and I think it follows through to the end of the film Mm -hmm. so Rayford Johnson who plays that character whose name is Davis he only has probably like four or five lines throughout the whole movie Mm -hmm. but he's actually a super interesting guy I just want to run through some like bullet points of his life because he's had an incredibly fascinating life he won the 1953 and 54 california high school decathlons and then broke the world record for decathlon points as a freshman at ucla Mm -hmm. he played under probably the most legendary basketball coach john wooden there he was named sports illustrated sportsman of the year in 1958 was class president and then joined the first non-discriminatory fraternity that ever existed in the u.s but while he was training for the 1960 olympics he he was friends with kirk douglas who suggested he go for a role in Spartacus. Mm. And he actually ended up getting him a small part in it, but unfortunately he wasn't able to act in it because it would forfeit his amateur status and he wouldn't have been able to go to the Olympics. So he missed out on that opportunity, but he went to the 1960 Olympics, won the gold medal, ended up being drafted by the LA Rams, didn't go to the NFL, and instead started taking up some small acting roles. And this is one of the first movies that he was in. Then goes through the 60s and he's acting some, but he also was part of RFK's 1968 campaign. And he was the guy who tackled Sirhan Sirhan after he shot Robert Kennedy. Mm. So then he goes on to help fund the Special Olympics in Southern California and works as a broadcaster in the 70s. And now just basically has continued working with the Special Olympics in Southern California since that time. And I was just he just had a fascinating kind of life and like yeah. touched a lot of weird, weird spheres over time. And it sounds like they're because of his successes, they're casting him in this movie is, is like I said, a conscious and intentional decision. Mm-hmm. So they're making a statement with this film. I thought, again, it's that thing where it's like Elvis movies. Sometimes they sneak in these things that are are really progressive for the time period. And then there's other things that are problematic. But um, that's really cool that his life story was that impactful. So, yeah. So his character, Davis, then working for Phil Macy, who seems to be a lawyer. Yeah, I think. Right. And he definitely has a professional relationship with Irene, as we then come to find out also a romantic one. And, yeah, he that's the scene where he then asks her you know, I'm ready to leave whenever you're ready to tell me. And she's upset, obviously, because it's, she's saying, no, you're making the weight of the decision entirely on me, and that's unfair. Yeah, and she even calls him, says, you just want out of a bad marriage, a bad situation. Do you really even want to marry me? Um, which he does, I think, is is his motivations later in the movies. He does want to marry her, but it is... <laughs> 
the his execution is problematic. Yeah. And then the the weird mirroring scene that kind of comes after that is Elvis who is living with his uncle and his uncle's daughter Nori who has a young child and we don't really know what the deal with the father is he seems to be out of the picture or gone or something. But Uncle Ralph is continually trying to set him up with her. Yeah, well, he's, they say that the husband is off on some government job. Mm. I mean, and most people, pretty quickly, you can pick up that it's just that she's a single mother who had a child out of wedlock in this time period, and that was viewed as unacceptable, which it was at that time period. Um, and it was like a black mark on someone's life, essentially. So he's made up this narrative, clearly, that she's she has a husband somewhere but yeah like you're saying if that's the narrative why is he sitting here being like hey glenn hey you should get with my daughter constantly it's just super awkward like and he also was like i'm going to the poker game tonight i'll be out late and like keeps trying to make sure that they hook up which is just like again yeah i could say i get it from a social standpoint it just always feels weird well the movie's doing it again it's it's pretty progressive in this view of marriage and that it's saying like People care more about how they look to other people and mm. getting their daughter married to somebody than they care about what that person actually wants yeah. or what is best for that human being. Which is also a little bit confusing because it seems like Nori does want Glenn, though, throughout that process. And, like, there's a little bit of a cat and mousey kind of thing, but but he ends up pulling her into the bathroom with him and they do hook up, so... All sort of well that, that ends well in that moment. I love how he's like sitting. He's like, "Is the bath water warm?" And she's like, "Yes." And he goes in. And he's like feeling it, looking at her through the open door. And she's like, "Close that door." And he's like, "No, I want it open." And then he disappears. <laughs> and then she's like, "I guess I'll just see what he's doing in there." And she's all mad about it though. She's like, "I said close." And she like goes. And then he yanks her inside the bathroom. Ugh. It's a weird scene. And I, I did want to check. So they are, I think second or third cousins once removed so there's no blood there which i think is you know better than not but i mean my my great-grandparents were second cousins i believe actually maybe first but whoa really yeah they were pretty closely related i think i mean i i'm okay my siblings seem okay yeah but yeah so (laughs) it's probably it's still a little close for comfort but i think this situation is not as bad yeah that's okay yeah anyways (laughs) i didn't even clock that they were Sort of related. Yeah, because Uncle Ralph is his uncle. Yeah. And that's his daughter, which is your first... I just couldn't focus on Uncle Ralph being an uncle because he had that mustache. I just... it was He was like an old silent film villain, man. Yeah, he looked like a crazy oompal... Not oompal... uh, Crazy uh, (laughs) lollipop kid. Lollipop gang kid. That's what he looked like. And his acting was like... His acting in this is great because it's still of that, like, very dramatic cinema... Like the there's the well I'll get to well, it. Well, no, I mean it happens basically the next scene where they're at the carnival. Yeah, which we said it was we wondered if it's a party city. It's not. It's a hospital <laughs> that's I, throwing a carnival inside the hospital. I mean, don't get me wrong. We were being a little facetious, but we were very wrong. No, I thought it was a party city. You don't know how to recover from this joke. Keep going. Okay, <laughs> but so they're there, and he just kind of pulls them aside and literally almost twirling his mustache is like, well, you know, her husband is actually. Uh, how can I say this? He's dead. <laughs> and he's like, but I haven't told her yet. Which is always just the scummiest move is the like leveraging, whether true or not, we really don't know what the truth is here, but leveraging that kind of is- information 
What? We know the truth because Glenn says the truth immediately after, which is there is no husband. Yes, yes. And I you're going to try and just use your, your daughter as a pawn, this, and he's, I'm not going to have it. So he, so he gives him a shove, of of course, which Uncle Ralph exaggerates a little bit. <laughs> Uncle Ralph gets up, and he's, and he's like, that kid! And they're like, are you hurt? And he goes, Where's that boy? Get that Tyler boy. He deliberately shoved and pushed me down. Call the police! Are you hurt, Mr. Braxton? Oh, I ache bad. I ache very bad. It, it's almost like from from Gone with the Wind. I'll never go hungry again. <laughs> but he's just like, I ache bad. So Elvis goes to lay low for a little while. He gets a job at a garage, a town over or something, and is just kind of trying to wait for it all to, to blow over a bit with Uncle Ralph. But all during this time, Irene is helping him refine and do extra drafts of the story so that he can get it polished enough because she wants to take it to a college mm-hmm. um, and has hopes for him to possibly get into a writing program. And get a scholarship. And get a scholarship and have all that taken care of so he can actually get him out of the situation that, you know, he just keeps getting in trouble in this hometown. And it's one of those where it's like, if you never get out now, you never will. Basically. Yeah. And also for him to, like, live his passions and his talent. She, she sees him as having a natural inborn talent for this stuff. So she wants to nurture it. And they do go, and they and the professor there reads the story, and is and says he thinks he would Elvis would do a great job in his program. Uh, but on the way back, what ends up happening is that there's a huge rainstorm, and they have to pull over and stay stay the night at a motel, separate rooms, of course. This is Irene and Glenn. Irene and Glenn. But as they are, they are, they are you know, they're behaving themselves. But there's there's, there's a moment. There's some chemistry. There here. ends up being a moment. That, it is Elvis after all. You know, he you can only deny the passions of the heart for so long. Can't keep a heart in a box. And Irene does admit that there she does she has been having some feelings that she doesn't really know what to do with, and she knows this is an inappropriate situation. But again, it's Elvis, so you gotta smooch him at least once. Unfortunately, this is the same time that Phil Macy's son, Cliff Macy, is pulling up to uh, to schmooze with another lady of the night of his own. Dinky, crappy Cliff. He's and a bad of course, guy. he takes great pleasure in seeing his father's lover there with his sworn enemy. He clearly has a bad relationship with his father because Phil is trying to get out of the marriage at the beginning. So I'm sure that Cliff has sensed that as well. So he's got a lot of anger. Again, good writing. They've set everything up, you know. And Cliff is kind of that typical bully. And like earlier scenes, he just kind of is always poking and prodding at Elvis, being like, "Oh," and making fun of him for his for his life and situations he can't control. And Elvis, he hasn't hit him yet up to this point, but he's threatened him a lot and has you know grabbed him by the scruff of his neck and stuff like that. But this has finally given him the ammunition that he needs to to take him down for good. I guess you know what's happening, Tommy. Glenn, in a relationship like ours, this kind of thing often happens. In psychiatry, they call it transference. It's book talk. I don't mean to be disrespectful to you, but I'm in love with you, Irene. I'm in love with you. But Irene does have the wherewithal to stop things before they get too heated, and even though they have feelings for each other, she still leaves. So nothing happens, and like as it does in Elvis movies, he doesn't do anything really wrong. But there's that misunderstanding is set up, and that conflict is set up so that Cliff can go out and pretty much ruin everyone's life. So then there's this point where Irene is, after this incident, conflicted. 
basically. And she goes to Phil and says, it's time. Let's get married. I. She vaguely talks about this other man that she's trying to, she's like, I have, I'm trying to get away from this other guy and I just, I just need to be with you and everything will be fine. And she doesn't tell him who it is and he really doesn't kind of care, it seems, as long as he ends up with her. Mm-hmm. And then Cliff runs in immediately. He's like, oh, guess, well, guess who I saw at the hotel with, with Irene? Blah, blah, blah. And then goes off on this whole thing about it. it's Elvis. And then his dad in that moment hits him across the face, mm-hmm. which will come back later because they go and they and he confronts her with Elvis at the same time. And she admits to it. Elvis. No, you know, you know what? It just struck me that um, this this abuse, father abuse is a big thing in this story, too. And it goes along with that same father why have you forsaken me theme so there's a lot about father abuse and missing men in this movie missing fathers the the only thing though is there really ends up being there ends up being no reconciliation it's it's sort of like the rest of the movie whereas these issues are kind of brought up but for the most part no one really deals with any of their issues yeah it only ends up because elvis finds out that cliff has told phil and phil and irene about this about this incident that he angrily goes over and just punches him, and you know, second time, one punch kill for Elvis here. You seen Cliff Messy? Sure, he's inside. Well, talk to isn't you. Tyler a great lover? Who you got out in the truck, Lady Sperry? What you talking about? Now be real. I said I don't want you talking about her. She's a pushover. Ask my father. Ask anybody. <laughs> <laughs> Elvis is two con airs at this point. He's got two con air plots going on. So he's brought to trial. And originally earlier in the movie, Phil Macy had mentioned, yes, my son had, he called it like an athletic heart or a jumpy heart, which I guess is a murmur arrhythmia, something that his heart was not exactly right. And the assumption is that, you know, it's not necessarily Elvis's fault. He just punched him once and his heart couldn't take it. I guess. Yeah, but I mean, it still slugged him hard, and that punch is definitely the reason the heart stopped working. Lauren was very upset about the medicine in this movie, and understandably so, because there was a lot of very loose terminology. She was a little iffy on uh, on the specifics of how this all worked out. The point is, it was unintentional, but I don't understand how that's not still manslaughter. Sure. That's the crazy part, is he gets off completely scot-free, because like, he didn't mean to do it. That kid had a bad heart. And it's like, yeah, but like, if you'd... If you hit someone and killed him with a car, you're still you're still up for yeah. manslaughter, you know. And that's what the whole community's point is at this large trial that they have basically for Elvis. And Irene is so upset because she feels completely like this is her fault. This would have never happened if she wouldn't have fallen for Elvis. And she basically runs off upset at the point at which it seems like he's he's going to hang, you know, because Phil Macy is very intent that he's gonna he's gonna try to get him this that death sentence and he did not he he, he's even asked by irene she's like he had a bad heart you know obviously glenn didn't mean to do this and she turns to phil and says isn't that true and the the judge asks him and he just says nope he doesn't have a heart problem at all are you saying the boy had a chronic heart condition yes well if so uh, the family physician dr mclaws knew nothing about it well, ask his father, Mr. Macy. He told me about Cliff's heart weeks ago. Well, Phil, do you wish to make a statement? Now, you needn't, of course. We realize it's painful for you, but... There was nothing wrong with my son's heart. He was in perfect health. 
Now, here's the point at which the timeline gets a little confusing for me. Yeah, the time shift is really weird because she goes home upset. So, Irene, yes, Irene runs out of the courthouse upset after Phil Phil lies, basically, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. She gets home. She pets her dog one last time, goes out to the garage, starts the car, and tries to carbon monoxide suicide herself which surprised me big time i did not expect that to be in the movie it it was a bit of a left turn but then somebody comes running into the courthouse to say it seems as though five minutes have have passed but there has to have been a a span of hours i mean i thought it was another day but it 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 i guess maybe it was just a really long court proceeding and (laughs) I don't know, because it seems like the dialogue in the court just picks up right where it left off, and somebody runs in, and they're like, what, what happened? I mean, and then, like, and then Elvis just runs out of the courthouse. You gotta just go with it, because it's like the, why can ravens in Game of Thrones teleport across the world? Like, do we really want to watch a raven fly for an episode? No, no, we don't. Okay, so let's, we'll let it go. We'll let this one go. Harvey, there's nothing to be afraid of anymore. Mr. Macy told him the truth. I'm free. But I need you, Irene. Don't leave me. Don't you leave me, too. I'm so ashamed. Don't be ashamed. I'll help you. In the original version of the of the book, the original version is she dies, she commits suicide, and she go and she is successful. But this version, she survives, and basically the movie just ends. She's like, oh, they kind of reconcile, and she sends him off to college, and that's kind of it. And they kiss, so there's still a thing there. And he's like, I'll come back after college. And she wants him to go and just grow as a human in college. So it's it's very left, very open. Which is not common for a Elvis movie. Yeah, I can't tell if I... I mean, it ended up changing because audiences really didn't like that she died, which I feel like it's one of those things, like, anytime you have a test audience and it's like, would you prefer this character die or not? They're almost always going to say no, right? Unless it's like a villain that needs justice done to them. Mm -hmm. How do you think it really affects the story, whether she succeeds or does not succeed? Uh, It becomes a true tragedy, for sure if she succeeds because it could be like a tragedy with an up but it would mainly be a movie about catharsis and the lesson learned from all of this pain throughout the movie which i think is stronger for what it's set up thematically throughout the film which is why the book probably did that Mm -hmm. i think that if she dies the directors and the screenwriter might have felt that it would have shattered him it would have shattered Glenn to the point where would he have actually gone to college and picked himself up and, and tried to live the life he's supposed to live. So I guess that's what their choice was. No, Glenn? I'm not saying goodbye. I know. But find out first. Be sure. That's what college is for, is to find out. Are we right? that pretty much wraps up for the story which is what makes it interesting is we haven't even mentioned any of the songs so far 
And I like that in this movie, it it yes, the songs again. It's not like a musical; they're not crucial to the plot or the story at all. And I feel like they're definitely inserted to fulfill an Elvis quota. But I kind of really liked the way these songs fit into the movie, though, because the story generally is just kind of heavier. That I really liked the moment of like respite that it kind of gives. It's simple stuff where Elvis and Millie are driving back from a date and he just does the, I stumbled, I fell. I look at you and wham, I'm head over heels. I guess that love is a banana peel. I feel so bad and yet I'm feeling so well. I slipped, I stumbled, I fell, one crazy kiss. It's only a minute long, which is a little bit of a weird length and it does just kind of happen. But I kind of like it because it we don't get to see as much of like the sweeter, more approachable side of his character as much because he's usually dealing with such serious circumstances the whole time that I'd rather they be in there. They kind of give a nice emotional levity, I think, to the story in moments where otherwise it would feel just heavy throughout yeah. the entire time. I mean, I think that's a good point. I, I personally didn't like the songs. I feel like the movie would have been fine without them, but I, I get that that must have been their intention was to lighten it tonally a little bit because I, I think like even the moment with him and him and Noreen because she the guitar that she gives I, him is also a, is, is kind of an aspect of the story I right? like that song I may not be here tomorrow but I'm close beside you today so lie to me a little Say you love me a lot And I'll be true to you in my way I liked that moment in the, in the, in the script, but I thought that the, the other ones just felt kind of weird to me and kind of inserted. But you're right, there's, they are supposed to be moments of joy. And they're few and far between for Glenn in this story. So, But the other thing, too, is that all of the, the musical moments happen in more intimate settings as well, right? Nothing really happens for a crowd. Nothing is meant to play up Elvis as an artist. It's more in the sense of just, I don't know, I think it's just supposed to round out the edges a little bit of his character. Yes, don't get me wrong, they are filler, and they, as all the other movies, Elvis has multiple quotes about, these, this is totally unnatural. It's embarrassing. I would never sing here. This shouldn't be in here. If he would have gone to that carnival, right? Mm-hmm. And at the same conversation at which he's told, oh, Noreen doesn't actually have a husband at all. And this whole conflict happens. It'd be really weird if 30 seconds before that, like in other movies, what would happen? It'd be some had been like, oh, play a song for us. You're pretty good at guitar. Yeah. And he'd go do this whole rock and number. And then this very dramatic thing happens on the back of that. I think it's nice because they at least pick the right spots in the story for there to be songs i think if there had to be songs yeah i mean the reason i like the noreen the song with noreen is because that one has an emotional purpose in the story and it works really well but i do agree with you that it's handled a lot more naturally in this movie than most of the movies up to this point there are a couple of funny just with actors that went on to do other Elvis related things in the future, which is odd. Like uh, Noreen, who's Tuesday Veld, she was in a movie called Heartbreak Hotel where she plays a mom whose sons kidnap Elvis for her because that's her favorite musician. <laughs> and Betty Lee, who plays Millie, she would play Elvis's mother Gladys in the 19 in a 1990 TV series about his life. And then Red West is in the movie. Mm-hmm. One of Elvis's the Memphis Mafia, one of his entourage guys, who I mean, you know, patron saint 
of Roadhouse, the yeah. greatest bar movie of all time. All apologies to Cocktail and Urban Cowboy. Roadhouse is we watched it uh, last night, and let me tell you what it's Ooh. it's a top five American action movie. It's it rules. Like I don't understand why compared to so many other movies of that time it was like really poor there's it won five razzies it won worst director worst actor for swayze worst picture worst everything shoot because we watch it and through a historical lens on a vhs tape where we think it's a funny awesome movie they tried to make that a good movie just objectively by itself and it's not it's just a rad goofy 80s action movie like commando but it is good. But it is good. <laughs> Sorry, we're closed. Well, then what are all these people doing here? Drinking and having a good time. Well, that's why we're here. Yeah. You're too stupid to have a good time. So another thread that seems to kind of pick up or become more problematic during this time in Elvis's life, during this the filming of it, is his drug use. So amphetamines when he went into the army was the first time he was really introduced to amphetamines and he used them for just for energy for waking up in the morning and eventually got to the point where he needed him to sleep at night and then also needed them to just kind of keep going throughout the day so he was kind of always on a pill cocktail the same way that Marilyn Monroe and Elizabeth Taylor and a lot of other stars of the time ended up using pills as a way to just just function normally but apparently it's around this time where it kind of starts to become more of an issue and it conflates with his temper which he, he seems to have always had bad temper, but it, he seems to lose control a few more times. Christina Crawford, who plays a small role in this movie and is jo- Joan Crawford's daughter, apparently at one point she asked him why some member of his entourage had to light a cigar for him and said why he couldn't do it himself, and he grabbed her by the hair and threw her across a table. Yikes. At one point, some he was he was driving around in San Francisco and some teenagers were yelling at him, and he, and he pulled out a gun on them in traffic. He seems to have started exhibiting a lot of erratic behavior around this point Mm. based, A, surely from the frustration that he doesn't want to be doing the kind of stuff that the colonel has forced him into doing here. He's exhausted because he's done all these movies back to back and is just churning out stuff as he will for the next decade or so. And one of the things also that keeps coming up in the research is that he doesn't, he doesn't really, he wasn't much of a drinker, I think, because there was like an alcoholic past in his family, but they said that anytime he did drink anything, anytime he did anything, he would do it to excess, mm-hmm. right? I mean, not, you know, we it's, obviously think of the Elvis excess as the insane cars with all the stuff on it and the jackets and the whatever, but everything he did was doing it to the most of that he possibly could. Yeah, addictive personality. And pushing his limits, yeah. And so that seemed, he seemed to have, he got, they got thrown out of hotels a lot during this production and they just, it seems to be, this is like when does really accept, though he, he a lot of times, treats the people he works with well with except for the those small instances not small but instances he he does seem to have the personal life side of things starting to unravel a little bit in terms of the control and just having a perspective mm. on who he is in his fame and like being surrounded by yes men at all times there's no counterbalance in his life that is a positive force because the colonel is a counterbalance but it's no, you're going to do this thing, not necessarily taking into account what is best for Elvis. Mm-hmm. But it is also during during the filming of Wild in the Country, the Colonel Parker came across a newspaper article that they were having trouble raising funds to build the USS Arizona Memorial um, in Pearl Harbor. Okay, and so because of this, they him and Elvis both loved Hawaii and were 
self-defined as great patriots and so he, they came up with the idea of doing a benefit concert in hawaii to raise funds for the memorial there's things to be on here we'll, we'll talk about more later but this during this movie is when they get the push towards hey there's some cool stuff we can do in hawaii which the next episode will be blue hawaii but those kinds of seeds are planted during the production of this movie as well interesting the the thing that unfortunately happens like we've said it doesn't do well at the box office and it has very mixed criticism mixed critical response and it ends up being the last straight drama that he does until Charo, which is eight years later, which, which is the other Western, which I was wrong about. This was not the Western. It's Charo. So we're about to get into the kitsch, Elvis. So, yeah, we're about to go full into churning out light comedies for eight years, pretty much. It's funny because this is originally the period that I was most excited about because I love kitschy movies and I love, you know, it's good that I have gained more of a respect for Elvis, the actor over the course of these movies we're not going to probably be analyzing him in the same way obviously because he's not trying to do the same things or has the same capacity to do them so i'm going to miss a little bit more of the probably serious discussions but like like we keep saying we keep being surprised yeah so even though everyone in the elvis fan community tells us "Ooh, you're about to enter the rough patch i I think there'll still be some really cool stuff there and you know i mean next episode is blue hawaii and if you're going to listen to one episode of this podcast it's got to be the four-hour extravaganza that's going to be blue Hawaii. oh yeah this is going to be a sloppy episode just everyone prepare yourselves i am super excited about it get your sea legs ready that's all i'm gonna say you know you got to be excited about blue hawaii because our boy charles brock is going to be on the podcast and it's going to be a good one he's a tiki aficionado he's a writer he's really funny it's going to be a blast He, he was there when we first watched blue hawaii you know, we, 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 we owe a lot of our, of our love for these Elvis movies to the experience we had with Charles. So he's been he's been there since the beginning, and now you'll finally get to hear from him. You know, maybe when we do the Instagram post for this episode of Blue Hawaii, we can post the very first Tiki picture the three of us ever took Ooh, together. That'll be a treat. As always, we would love to hear from you guys. If there's anything you, any questions, any comments, any concerns you have that you want to voice, that's jailhousetalkpod at gmail.com or at jailhouse talk pod on instagram and you know people say this a lot but it's because it works and it helps the podcast if you could rate us on itunes it helps us move up in the listings it helps us find new listeners as much as we love that you guys listen to it we want to have more people listen to it and the more people listen to it the more regularly we can put out content and get more cool cool elvis stuff going it doesn't have to be five stars be honest if it's four stars it's four stars i'm not gonna i'm not gonna sit here and beg but what i want (laughs) is an honest response and you know what keep supporting us it might not end with elvis we got some ideas in the chamber but we'll save that for another time all right we'll check you out next time with blue hawaii see you then